Coming up, former SEAL Jack Carr on making the terminal list. Welcome to another Real American Heroes Special Edition. I'm Oliver North, and our guest today, Jack Carr, Navy SEAL Lieutenant Commander, retired. Over his 20 years in naval special warfare, he transitioned from an enlisted SEAL sniper to an officer, leading assault and sniper teams in Afghanistan and Iraq. Today, he's a New York Times best-selling author and now working on scripts for an adaptation of his first novel, The Terminal List, scheduled to be released in 2021. Jack, thanks for taking time to join us today. Oh my gosh, it's such an honor to be on here with you. Thank you so much for having me. Look, you, you were drawn into the service. I've read your bio and I've read your books, so I'm fascinated. But you were drawn into the SEAL teams from a very early age. Where did that come from? Tell us about that family story. Right, so I think it came from growing up with uh, pictures of my grandfather. He was, he was killed in World War II off Okinawa in 1945, near the end of the war. He was a Corsair pilot. And for those who remember, it's the, the plane with the gull wings that would, would fold up. It's uh, it had a, a show, uh, Black Sheep Squadron in the late 70s, early 80s, starring Robert Conrad that I watched with my dad because that was kind of a connection to, to his dad who he never met because my dad was born while his father was away fighting World War II. But uh, I grew up with his medals, uh, pictures of him with his squadron, the silk maps that they used to give aviators back then. So if you hit the water, uh, they wouldn't disintegrate like a paper map would, uh, his wings from his squadron. So I grew up with all that and I was, he was my hero. He was, he, he was my ideal hero growing up, even though obviously I never knew, knew him. But my connection was through those wings, was through knowing that he was a, 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 a Marine Corps aviator. And uh, I just knew I was gonna go in the military, follow him into the military at some point. I didn't know what I was gonna do yet, but it was that calling, it was that calling to serve. And then also very early on, I found out about what SEALs were through an old black and white film called The Frogman that, uh, that I saw little snippets of when my dad was watching football. I could run up to the screen because I was a remote control in those days and I could turn the channel to the war movie that was playing on that odd channel because there was ABC, CBS, NBC, and then there was that outlier that always had a World War II movie on. And I uh, found out about Frogman and went down to the local library with my mom, who's a librarian, and looked up what frogmen were, what seals were, what UDT was, and so I my path. I, I've got 18 grandkids, 11 of whom are boys, several of whom are getting ready to graduate from high school, right? And so, of course, I'm trying to convince them to be a Marine. And, of course, save mom and dad a boatload of money by taking one of the academies or going to ROTC or whatever. You enlisted. How did you prepare for that? I did too, by the way. I mean, I, my enlistment date in the United States Marine Corps Reserve was the 29th of December, 1961. Wow. So that's how old I am, right? <laughs> and I tell them how I prepared. Fitness is part of it, isn't it? Mentally and physically. Absolutely. So having a mom who's a librarian, uh, like we grew up surrounded by books, as you can tell from my background, that's never, never left. Uh, so I started studying back then, even back then, I, I gravitated towards fiction with protagonists who had backgrounds similar to what I wanted to have in real life one day. And then I was studying books on warfare. And back then there wasn't that much written on special operations. You could actually read it all. Uh, there was no internet, there was no nothing, anything like that. So you'd go down to the library and, and, and read these things. But 
in conjunction with that, so I found out there were some pictures and there was a couple magazine articles and they showed these guys running through the buds, the SEAL training obstacle course and swinging on ropes and climbing uh, things. And so I thought, okay, I'm gonna replicate this. So I do sprints in my backyard. We had a little jungle gym in the backyard that I was doing pull-ups from and I was using different hand positions because I'd seen these guys on the obstacle course doing these different things that weren't just strict pull-ups. Uh, I put a rope up in the backyard to climb. I attached a rope to our chimney and got a harness and started rappelling and all things. And I'd go up on the top of the roof with my bow and I'd shoot down at an angle as part of this, this circuit that I do as I got home from school. So everything I did, whether it was soccer or lacrosse, cross country or my own training, it was all geared toward preparing me to go into the military. That was always the goal. It wasn't to win a championship. It wasn't to be the best lacrosse player. It wasn't to, it was to prepare myself for the military, prepare myself for service. Give me a sense for your, your first deployments uh, as part of the teams. So the first one, pre-September 11th, uh, and back then, uh, you'd had this model from the end of Vietnam up until September 11th, 2001. And there were some flashpoints in there with Desert One, with Mogadishu, with Grenada, with Panama. But for the most part, all of our training was based on the tactics, techniques, and procedures that the guys in Vietnam had developed. And that changed very quickly after September 11th. But my first one, you go down range and uh, you really it was just training, foreign internal defense. And for me, that was uh, in, in Japan, in Korea, in Australia. Some guys did went to Thailand, I never made it. But uh, that was the first one. And that was fairly typical for a pre-September 11th deployment. And then two weeks into my second deployment was September 11th. And we were in Guam at the time. And about midnight over there in that part of the world, people started banging on doors, phones started ringing, and we had one TV in the barracks. So we went down to the basement and we watched the Twin Towers fall on TV. And then it was not the next day, but uh, fairly soon thereafter, we were on the C-17, headed to the Middle East. And then it was from then on, it was just back and forth from that area. And the guys are still doing it today. There's a, guy, a, guy, a lot of guys have read your books. They're going to be fascinated by this. I, I, and my grandkids are as well. Give us a sense for how challenging it was for you to make the transition from a career in the U.S. military in this, in, with the teams to civilian life in the private sector. Right, so I, I was very fortunate in that my last couple of years, I uh, was at a training command. So I knew after my last Iraq deployment, after we shut Iraq down at the end of 2011, uh, I came back and I took a breath. And for the first time I realized, okay, I've now an 04. So a, a Lieutenant Commander, a major for, uh, for all the other services. And I knew that that was the last time I would tactically lead guys on the battlefield. Uh, from then, once you become an 05 and a, and a commander of a team, yes, you're a leader, but you're in the tactical operations center. You're not going out there kicking doors at that stage these days. Uh, so I also knew my family needed me. We had a child with severe special needs, and it was time to leave the military. So took that breath, and I knew that the other thing, other than serving my country in the military, that I wanted to do with my life was write. And I wanted to write those kind of books that I read growing up by guys like uh, Nelson DeMille, David Morrell, Tom Clancy, AJ Quinnell, JC Pollock, Mark Olden, all these guys that had those protagonists with backgrounds. And in those days, it was typically Vietnam experience that those guys had, either uh, in some sort of recon element or SEALs or special forces, or they were attached to the agency somehow. And I just, I was very fortunate that I knew what my calling was. I knew my next purpose, which was to take care of my family, take care of our middle child. And I had that passion for writing. So I got to combine all that and head out the door from the military. But I recognize that a lot of people don't know what they want to do next. And I saw a lot of guys try to leave and keep one foot in and they weren't able to let it go. They weren't able to build from that foundation that they'd had in the military, particularly 
in special operations. So for me, the transition, I was very fortunate and it played out exactly the way I'd planned from a very early age. You have, you, you mentioned your child with special needs. Ross Perot was engaged in helping your family in that. Give, give That's us, right. He, he, he was a remarkable man and the world misses him. And he, he loved those of us who served in the military as he had done, done himself. Give us a sense for how he helped your family. Right. So our middle child was born and we knew something was wrong right away. Uh, but it took about seven years and the military couldn't figure out what was going, going on. Uh, we went up to, to Cedar sinai in L.A. They couldn't figure out what was going on. We did all sorts of, of private things and tried to figure out what's happening. No one could figure this out. And then a friend of ours was one of uh, new one of Ross Perot's uh, financial advisors and sent him an email. And, say, and then I get this call from out of the blue in December of 2013, I think it was. And Ross Perot is on the line, who sounds remarkably like Dana Carvey impersonating Ross Perot <laughs> on Saturday Night Live. And uh, it, was, it was fascinating. And he tells me, we're going to send the jet. We're going to put together a team out here in Texas. And we're going to fly you out. We're going to figure this out. And then he, then he hangs up. And sure enough, about an hour later, his head doctor called uh, from Southwestern Medical Center out there outside of Dallas and uh, says, hey, we're not going to send the plane tomorrow, but send us everything you have on your son. And we'll, we'll put together a team and we'll see what we can do. So sure enough, a month later, Ross Perot sends the G550 out, pick us up with our son, with a nurse on board and fly us out. And we did a week of testing out there in Dallas and they sent our blood all around the world. And they found a researcher in the Netherlands who had just discovered the specific mutation for a certain gene called NR2F1. And if it wasn't for Ross Perot, we would never have this diagnosis. And for us as a family, it really helped to put a name to this. Uh, find out, hey, it wasn't anyone's fault. And here we go. Now we can move forward. Just have, and so I'll, I'll always be indebted to him for that. And he was fantastic to our family. And then on my book tour, my first one, I got to say hello again. And he still had our son's picture on his desk all those years later. Amazing. Well, that's a, he was a generous man. No doubt about it. I, I, I would just want to make sure that I understand when this book comes out, when this movie comes out, it's going to be a multi-part movie, right? Okay. That's right. So Amazon has it, and it's uh, an eight-part series, and uh, Chris Pratt is starring, Anton Fuqua is directing, and it's, uh, yeah, I feel extremely fortunate because as I was writing it, you know, they tell you if you read these writing books not to picture anyone playing your main character, but as a child of the 80s, that was almost impossible to do. So I thought, who would be a great guy to play this role? And at the time, no one knew who Chris Pratt was. He had a very small role in Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, I kind of knew that he was a hunter. Um, and I thought, you know, this is a guy who kind of like Tom Hanks all through the 80s. He did comedy. Then all of a sudden he takes a he, he, he takes a risk with Philadelphia. And from then on, he can do anything he wants. And I thought, who's that guy who's likable? It's very important for me to have a likable character here because he's going to do some very terrible things in this book. And the audience has to be along for the ride and has to forgive him some of these things. Uh, so it needs to be a likable person. And I thought Chris Pratt's the guy. And as I was writing, uh, that's what I thought, who I thought about, but I had no connection to it. And then right before the book came out, I got a call from an old SEAL buddy who said, hey, I always wanted to thank you for, for uh, you did something for me in the SEAL teams. And I thought, what did I do? Did I bail him out of jail? What's going on? And he said, well, you're the only person that sat me down in your office as I was getting out. You talked about transition. You introduced me to people in the private sector. And I always wanted to thank you. And I said, no problem, of course. And he says, I heard you wrote a book. And I said, yeah, it's coming out in a few months. And there's this galley copy I can send you, which is a pre-edition thing. And, and he says, that'd be great, but I'd like to give it to a friend of mine. And I said, yeah, no problem. Who's that? He said, Chris Pratt. So Chris read it. And two weeks later, he calls and wants to option it. So he optioned it before it even hit shelves. That's great. I very much appreciate, Jack, you taking time to be with us today. I, I think this is the kind of 
tease, if you will, when Terminalist comes out with Chris Pratt in it, you don't want to miss this book. So thank you very much for taking time to be with us. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for, for all your support and uh, for your inspiration and for everything you've done for the country, both in and out of uniform. It's uh, sincerely appreciated. God bless you, brother. Folks, if this Real American Heroes podcast and broadcast has been informative, helpful, or encouraging, take time now to subscribe and let me know how these unprecedented times have affected you and yours. By doing so, you can become part of this historical record of how America persevered and once again prospered. And until next time, remember, Semper Fidelis is more than a slogan for U.S. Marines. Always faithful is a way of life.